December 24th, 2007, Christmas Eve. The Anderson family is gathering in their home in Washington State. Parents Wayne and Judy are celebrating Christmas with their son, daughter-in-law, and two grandchildren. Also joining the party is their daughter, Michelle, and her boyfriend, Joe. But before the Christmas presents are even wrapped, Michelle and Joe will open fire on the family, killing everyone in the house. This is the story of the Anderson family, a violent night in Carnation, Washington. Hey, y'all, I'm Chris Calvert. And I'm her husband, Rob Potter. Welcome to Hitch to Homicide. For better or worse. Till death do us part. back everybody yes welcome 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 and for our well actually i should say my fellow irishman okay <laughs> fulcha 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 there you go <laughs> not to be confused with opa <laughs> well there you go <laughs> yeah well wherever you are listening to us this last wednesday before christmas 2023 Woo-hoo. be sure to like rate and review you can subscribe to hitch to homicide on just about every podcast platform mm-hmm we're here each and every Wednesday chatting about homicide. Come hell or high water. <laughs> Speaking of hell or high water, if you want more H2H than just on Wednesdays, go to Facebook and join our closed group, the H2H In-Laws and Outlaws. Those maniacs. Absolutely. <laughs> That's our family. Yep. And you can also follow us on social media on Instagram at Hitch to Homicide and on X, formerly known as Twitter, at H2H underscore podcast because Hitch to Homicide is one letter too long. I'm going to say it every week. Dang it. (laughs) Missed it by that much. By that much. (laughs) Well, we're just a few days away from Christmas and I'm bringing the holiday homicide again this week. And before the Christmas holiday is over, I just want to say it is okay To not be okay during the holidays. Yes. Because for some people, it's the first holiday without a loved one. Mm -hmm. And you might be grieving. You might be estranged from your family. Right. So all the commercials, TikToks, and Hallmark movies with perfect families make you feel bad. (laughs) Yeah. You might be fighting an illness or taking care of somebody who's sick. Maybe you lost your job or your relationship with your significant other is not going well. Just know you are not alone. And this goes for all the people that have lost their pets also. Absolutely. Nobody's life's perfect. Please know that you matter. You matter to us because you show up each week and listen (laughs) to me blather on (laughs) (laughs) when you don't have to. Right, exactly. So if you find yourself going to a dark place in the next few days, pick up your phone and call a friend. Yep. And you can also text TALK to 741-741 or just call 988. There you go. Thank you. This is my last homicide for the holidays. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I should write a song, Homicide for the Holidays. I mean, it's true. (laughs) The next time we get together, we will be getting ready for? The most important day of the year. And what's that, honey? Your birthday. It's my birthday. (laughs) 
<laughs> did I answer correctly? You did. Ding, ding, ding. Okay. You did. All right. Just checking. <laughs> okay. Before we get started today, let me thank some sources. Murderpedia, the Tacoma News Tribune, Wikipedia, the Seattle Times, All This Interesting, Fox 13 Seattle, and the Seattle Post-Intelligencer. All right. Well, you ready? I am. Let's do it. Well, the Anderson family, who we're going to talk about today, consists of Wayne and Judy, the parents. They had three kids, Scott, Mary, and Michelle. And if they had a fourth, it would be Neo. As in the the Matrix? Mr. Anderson, I presume. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Bring the hate mail. Chris is never, I have never seen a Matrix movie. I'm going to get her to watch it. We have them all. I know. And he has tried to get me to watch them. And I'm a huge Keanu Reeves fan. Yeah. But I digress. (laughs) It's not that Anderson family. Yeah. This family lives in Carnation, Washington, which is 25 miles east of Seattle. Okay. The father, Wayne, works for Boeing as an engineer, and the mother, Judy, is a U.S. mail carrier in Carnation, which at the time of our story in 2007, Mm -hmm. the population is 2,000 people. Oh, wow. So it's a tiny, charming little place to raise a family. It's like one of those towns that you kind of drive through, and if you blink, you actually miss it. Yeah, and if you know Washington State, it's gorgeous. Yeah. It's so beautiful there. Yep. Wayne was a down-to-earth guy, the dad. He was born in Tucson, Arizona on May 31st, 1947, and he spent most of his childhood in Ventura, where he graduated from high school and college. Okay. He was a Vietnam War vet. Thank you for your service, Wayne. Thank you. He fell in love and married Judy Elaine Fisher on September 30th, 1972 in Ventura, California. Eight years later, they moved to Carnation, Washington, where Wayne took his job at Boeing And he worked his way up the ranks to be a tool engineer. Okay. He loved to fish. He loved to entertain his family with gymnastics. (laughs) Well, there's something So I don't know if granddad's doing cartwheels on the lawn, (laughs) but that is what I read. Doing backflips off the roof into the above ground pool. I guess. (laughs) And he loved helping his children with school science projects. Now, that's a good granddad. Yep. In his spare time, he liked to rebuild old Ford cars. He was honest and hardworking. His friends thought of him as just a great guy who loved good food, and he loved to share a good story. Hmm. Much like myself, Chris loves telling a good story. Yeah. Hence why we have a podcast. (laughs) There you go. His wife, Judy, is born in Michigan on March 20th, 1946. She grew up in Michigan and graduated from high school there before going to Detroit for college. After she and Wayne married, she didn't take a job until she started working for the U.S. Postal Service in 1990 because she raised her children. Gotcha. She was the kind of mail carrier who knew the people on her route, sort of like our dog Scotty knows our mailman (laughs) on the route. Because he gives him a begging strip every time. He gets a begging strip (laughs) every single time he's out on a walk. He sees the white mail truck and he's waiting for his treat. Yep. God bless all those mail carriers, especially right now who are working overtime Uh, to get packages everywhere. I would lose my mind. So mad respect. Absolutely. She's that person who knew all the people on her route and she's given out begging strips probably. There you go. And she never hesitated to take a moment to chat while she is 
delivering the mail, Mm -hmm. much like our mailman who loves to talk about the Bengals with Rob. (laughs) Yeah, my team. (laughs) Judy loved cooking and quilting and sewing. She'd been taking piano lessons in 2007. So as a grandma, she's taking piano lessons. Good for her. And she loved her three children and her grandchildren very much. Nice. Michelle's brother, Scott, is born in California on October 24th, 1975. Michelle and her two siblings grew up in Carnation, and Scott graduated from Cedar Crest High School in 1994 with honors, where he played football and baseball and was also on the track team and the wrestling team. Wow. Did he have time to study? And he graduated with honors, so apparently he did have time to study. Yeah, that's great. Scott fell in love early, high school sweetheart. His high school sweetheart, Erica Mantle, was his girl for a really long time. And five years after these two graduate from high school, Scott and Erica get married on his birthday in 1999. See, somebody else is all about their birthday too, Annie. There you go. (laughs) Scott worked for Albrecht Birkenbuehl. You say that three times. Which is a structural concrete construction company for seven years. He leaves there after working there for seven years to work for a company called Mid-Mountain Contractors. Scott and Erica made a home in Black Diamond, which is a suburb area that's close to Carnation. On March 10th, 2002, Erica gave birth to their first child, Olivia Ryan Anderson. And two years later, they had another baby on December 10th, 2004, a little boy, Nathan Scott. Okay. Now, Michelle... The younger sister, Mm -hmm. she has a normal upbringing, just like her brother who graduated with honor and, you know, was on every sports team. Sure. She's close to her siblings. But according to her, Michelle had a volatile relationship with her parents. Mm. She claimed that her father was physically abusive to her and that her mother didn't understand her. Well, when you're in high school... Don't most teenagers think their parents don't understand them? Pretty much, yeah. And I think that's just carried over into adulthood for her. Mm. Michelle graduated from Cedar Crest High School in 1997, three years after her brother Scott. She's artistic. She hung out with the unpopular kids. This is according to Michelle's former classmate, Jennifer Chandler. And according to Jennifer, quote, Scott was the only person she really trusted because they went through their abusive childhood together, Mm. end quote. Now, nowhere could I find that Scott said he had an abusive childhood, just Michelle. And she does have another sister, Mary, who never says this either. Mm. In 2002, Michelle, while her brother and sister-in-law are having their first baby, Michelle's living close to home in Washington State. She meets a guy online, Joseph McEnroe. Joe was born in San Jose, California, and was diagnosed with a serious blood disorder as a kid. Don't know what that might have been, but... I guess as a kid, he had frequent nosebleeds. His mother babied him a bit because he was so sickly. Joe didn't play sports in school, but he read a lot and he played, quote, imaginative games, end quote. This according to his mother. Okay. What does that mean? (laughs) I I don't know, but hang on. We might get a glimpse into that in just a bit. All right. All right. (laughs) When his grades start to slip, he drops out of high school and went to work at Burger King. Okay. At 18, his family moved to Burien, where he worked at a Safeway grocery store, and then they moved to Arizona. In his late 20s, Joe played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons. 
So maybe that's part of the imaginative games. Sure. And he had even met a girl in South Carolina, and he would go visit her. But that doesn't last. Okay. Joe was living in Glendale, Arizona, when he meets Michelle Anderson online. And after these two have an online relationship, Joe moved to Washington because he wanted to marry Michelle. Wow. Quote, he said he was planning on settling down with Michelle and having a baby within two years, end quote. This according to his mother. Okay. Also in 2002, Michelle and her brother Scott decide they're going to start an auto painting company called Pure Evil Customs. <laughs> now, I could say that's called foreshadowing. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> because there's some pure evil that's going to happen. All right. When Joe moves to Washington to be with Michelle, these two first lived together in South King County then moved to Fall City in 2004, where they rented a mobile home, trailer number 39 in Spring Glen Mobile Home Park in Fall City. This is about 30 miles east of Seattle, but still very near Carnation, like six miles near. Okay. This whole area lies along the Snoqualmie River and the Raging River. And while these two live in trailer number 39, their neighbors hear them fight a lot. Mm. Quote, you have no job, you have no money, you have no life, end quote. That's pretty direct. <laughs> this is what was heard by their neighbors coming from the trailer. It's Michelle screaming at Joe. Wow. At that time, Michelle was working as a night security guard at Nintendo, and Joe worked for Target. And as far as what the neighbors thought, well, they thought that Joe and Michelle were paranoid. And one of them went so far to say that Joe was a total loser. <laughs> quote, they said numerous times that they feared for their lives, end quote. Really? Yeah. Wow. They felt they only had each other. They could only trust each other. Quote, there was this paranoia about them, end quote. Did they do drugs or something? Or? No, no, no drugs. Okay. But they were paranoid for sure. They covered the windows in their mobile home in the trailer park with black cloth. Really? They were certain that their neighbors spied on them and had tried to break into their trailer. They thought people were out to get them. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Now, I can't think of anything worse than being in a home or an apartment or a trailer and having all my windows blacked out. Oh, my gosh, yeah. I need some sunshine. I need to be able to see outside. Yeah. Yeah, but they're just blacked out inside this this trailer home. Wow. But people thought Michelle and Joe were weird. Well, do you think it's the blacked out windows? <laughs> the paranoia, the blacked out windows. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And on top of all of this, apparently Joe had a speech impediment. And when they were out walking around, they avoided eye contact with their neighbors. They didn't leave their trailer very much except to go to work. So they're sitting in the dark. And while they're living in the trailer, number 39, these two would get bent out of shape if somebody parked a car in their spot or there were kids in their yard <laughs> or a cat wandered into their yard. Wow. Michelle told people she was the black sheep of her family. But Michelle's mother, Judy, was always out there bringing them food like once a week. Mm. She would bring them food and stuff. Okay. Michelle also liked to tell people that her parents had quite a bit of money. And in that same breath, yeah. she would talk about how poor she and Joe were. Yeah. 
Joe was her lackey, and she'd even answered questions for him when somebody would ask him a question. Wow. How are you today, Joe? Joe's good today. <laughs> Joe's good. Yeah. Joe liked to talk about how his spirit guides always told him how to live his life. Well, I think Joe's spirit guides are broken, okay? <laughs> They've been out drinking. They're yeah. at the bar. They're somewhere. Joe's spirit guides are hungover. They're somewhere. <laughs> Still, Joe told everybody he wanted to marry Michelle, and he was going to take her last name because he was in a disagreement with his own family. Hmm. Joe's family had actually not heard from him in five years. Wow. Why, you might ask? Well, that disagreement was over Joe's mother ruining his credit score by being evicted from her apartment, an apartment that Joe co-signed for. Mm. And Michelle is mad, too, because Joe's bad credit score is keeping them from renting a place in Seattle. Gotcha. Well, put it in your name, Michelle. Yeah. What about your credit score? Exactly. He could just be your roommate. Right. Meanwhile, Michelle tells her friend that she's been diagnosed with severe anxiety, but she can't afford to see a counselor or take medication for it. Michelle also says she doesn't want to move back onto her parents' property. But in late 2006, that's exactly what happens. Mm. And most think it's because Michelle and Joe are in financial dire straits. And it's not going to cost them anything to live in a trailer on her parents' place. Right. But she said her father is abusive and that her mother didn't get her. So why is she moving back there? Uh, who knows? Here's how this is all going to shake out. Michelle is the self-proclaimed black sheep of the family. She and her brother have tried to go into business together. And at some point, according to Michelle, she loans Scott $40,000. Hmm. And what's that saying? Neither a borrower nor a lender be. Yeah. For load oft loses itself and friend and borrowing dulls the edge of husbandry. <laughs> Thank you, Will Shakespeare. It just means don't borrow money from your family or friends. Yeah, exactly. It's what a bank is for. Right. And while Michelle and Joe live in this trailer that Michelle's parents own on Michelle's parents' property, Michelle is just ruminating over and over about not having money, mm. about not getting the $40,000 back from her brother. And her parents are not taking her side on anything. Oh, wow. Not to mention, after being in the trailer for almost a year, her parents had the audacity to ask her to start paying rent. Wow. Well, I mean, she is 29 years old. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're living on our property, in our trailer, yep. rent-free for a year. There are two of you. You're both 29. Yep. Pay some rent. Absolutely. By December of 2007, Michelle has made a decision. If her family doesn't start respecting her, she's going to kill them all. Wow. And she has the guns to do it, too. Jeez. Michelle and Joe bought two guns at a pawn shop the summer of 2007. So just about six months prior, okay. a three fifty seven Magnum revolver and a 9mm semi-automatic pistol. Wow. They're gunning for bear, as they say. Yep. And now it's Christmas Eve, December 24th, 2007, and Michelle apparently still doesn't feel like she's getting the respect or her $40,000 from her family. Wow. 
It's 4 p.m. in the afternoon. Michelle and Joe are joining her parents and her brother, Scott, his wife, Erica, and their two children, Olivia and Nathan, at her parents' house. It's Christmas Eve family get-together. Mm-hmm. Michelle and Joe walk over to her mom and dad's house. It's just 200 feet away. Yeah, exactly. They're fully armed. Wow. When they get inside the house, Wayne, Michelle's father, is in the front room. Her mother's in the back of the house wrapping Christmas presents. Okay. Joe goes to the back of the house to see Judy because he wants to distract her while Michelle murders her father. So she shoots at her dad. She fires and misses. I also read that her semi-automatic gun jammed. But when she does fire, this causes her mom to come rushing out from the back room where she's wrapping presents. Joe's along with her. And when they get to the front room, Joe shoots Michelle's father, Wayne, in the head. And he drops in the living room. Wow. Her mother, Judy, screams, no. And Joe turns the gun on Judy, shooting her as well. She fell into the floor in the kitchen nearby. Mm. But Judy is still alive and she's screaming. So Joe says to her, quote, I'm sorry, end quote. And then he shot her again, this time at close range in the head. Wow. After Judy and Wayne are dead, Michelle and Joe drag their bodies from the house outside into a backyard shed. They don't want Michelle's brother, Scott, to see the dead bodies when they arrive. They take these bodies out of the house. They store them in this shed. Then they used towels and rugs to clean up all the blood. They get rid of everything they used to clean it up. It's going to take them about an hour to do this. Yeah. And to drag these bodies out of the house. Wow. The plan is to confront Michelle's brother, Scott, as soon as he walks through the door of their parents' home. And when Scott does walk into the house, Michelle pulls out the gun. And Scott sees what's about to happen, and he charges her. Remember, he's an athlete, a wrestler, a football player. Sure. So Michelle opens fire, shooting him four times, and one of those shots hit him in the neck. Now, this is all happening at At a very fast pace. It's all happening so quickly, obviously. Right. Because as soon as Michelle shot her brother, Scott, she opened fire on his wife and her sister-in-law, Erica. Mm. Michelle shoots Erica twice. But Erica's still alive, and she's climbing over a couch to get to her two children and to call for help. At this point, Michelle is out of ammo. She has shot. She's fired her gun so many times, she doesn't have any ammunition. Wow. Erica picks up the phone and dials 911. Remember, she's been shot two times. Yeah. But this is a mother who's trying to protect her two children. Mama Bear. At 5.13 p.m., the 911 operator picks up the call, a call that lasts about 10 seconds. And the dispatcher didn't hear anybody talking, but she does hear, quote, a lot of yelling in the background, end quote. <sighs> she thinks it's a, quote, party. <sighs> She thinks it's party noise. Wow. She doesn't think it's an angry, heated argument. But in hindsight, authorities will be able to hear Erica say, quote, not the kids, no, Uh, end quote. Yeah, that's heartbreaking. Now, at this point, Joe sees that Erica's on the phone. He takes the cordless phone away from her. He tears it apart. And it's at this point that Erica is huddling with her children. Erica is pleading with Joe saying, quote, You don't have to do this, end quote. Mm. And Joe said back to her, yes, we do. Wow. He told Erica he was sorry, and then he shot her in the head. 
Then he shot five-year-old Olivia in the head at close range. At this point, three-year-old Nathan picks up the batteries that Joe had torn out of the cordless phone, and he holds them up to him, like giving him Uh. these batteries back. And this broke my heart because I thought, he's so young and doesn't understand, but it looks like everybody else is in trouble. So let me, me, maybe this is what you're looking for. Let me give you this. Yeah, man. And he gave Joe a, quote, look of complete comprehension as if he understood, end quote. At this point, Joe fires one last shot into the head of little Nathan. (sighs) And if you're wondering why Joe shot the children, it was because, quote, I didn't want them to turn us in, end quote. Oh, my. Okay. So they've killed the parents, dragged them out of the house, stored them in a shed. Now she's killed her brother, her sister-in-law, and two children. And after they're all dead, then they just walked out the door. And locked it behind him. Then Michelle went down the hill to the main gate of her parents' property. She locks it because she knows Eric has called 911 and that call went through. Right. So the 911 dispatcher calls the number back, calls it back twice. But the line immediately goes to voicemail because it's been ripped out of the wall. Sure. And because this feels hinky, at 519, sheriff's deputies are sent to the location of the call. And they arrived at 545. Now, when they get there, they're stopped at this locked gate, and the house sits way off the road. It's dark. They can't see this house. Mm -hmm. And these two sheriff's deputies don't go any farther onto the property. And according to the dispatcher's log, the two deputies reported, quote, the gate is locked. We are unable to gain access, end quote. Mm. And they drive off. Michelle and Joe get in a car. They're off driving, too. Mm-hmm. Their plan is to drive to Canada, so they head north. Then they headed south to Oregon, but they never made it to either place because they decided they needed to go back and to pretend that they discovered the bodies. Okay. So they've made up this story on this long, wandering trip up to Canada, back south to Oregon, that they had driven to Las Vegas to get married. That's what they decided on. Okay. Not two mental giants by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> yeah, obviously. Tuesday, December 25th, 2007, Christmas Day comes and goes. Wayne and Judy had made plans to get together with their friends, the Bennetts. But when Mark Bennett called the house on Christmas Day, the call went straight to voicemail. So they didn't go over to the house. But when Judy didn't show up for work the day after Christmas on the 26th, her best friend and co-worker, Linda Thiel went to the house to check on her. Mm. She looks through the window and she sees bodies lying on the ground in blood. Wow. And she thinks it's Judy and Wayne. It's not. Right. It's Erica and Scott. Sure. But she calls the police. The King County Sheriff's deputies show up and they're there processing this crime scene when who pulls up but Michelle Anderson and Joe McEnroe. I hope they're good actors. <laughs> Now, if you pulled up to your parents' home, the property where you're living with your boyfriend in a trailer, not 200 feet away from your parents' house, the house where you grew up, and it is swarming with police, what is the first question out of your mouth? What's the first thing that's going to come out of your mouth? What's going on? What happened? Yeah. What happened? Are my parents okay? What has happened? Right. And yet Michelle did not ask why the police were there 
or if her parents or her family was okay. What did she say? She doesn't say anything. She just says, we were driving to Las Vegas, but got lost and decided to come back to Carnation. <laughs> oh, uh, say what? Wow. You got lost trying to drive to Las Vegas in <laughs> order to get married, so you came back? We turned at a cornfield and we didn't know. Where. I mean, seriously. Wow. The King County deputies think it all seems more than a little hinky, so they take them both in for questioning. Mm -hmm. And they separate them, and they both just break. It's not suspenseful in any way. I don't have any, like, weird stories or anything. They just both give up the goods right away. You're kidding. No. Oh, my God. Wow. Authorities started interrogating the both of them, and according to Michelle, they're on their way to Vegas to get married, but turned around and returned home after getting lost. She claimed that she last saw her parents on Christmas Eve, just before she left for Las Vegas. However, she soon just breaks down and confesses in the same breath that she murdered them all. Whoa. Michelle reportedly told authorities, quote, it's not Joe's fault, it's all my fault. As soon as I shot the gun, I felt so bad. Like, what the hell have I done? I'm a monster, end quote. Uh, Michelle, you are correct. Actually, she's giving monsters a bad name. She is giving monsters a bad name. <laughs> wow. She gives police a taped confession where she admits that she planned the murders for two weeks. So for two weeks... She plans this murder, and that was the best she could come up with? <laughs> we go to Canada, we go to Oregon, we say we're going to go to Vegas, but then we come back, and yeah. Uh, yes. Wow. She also tells police that she did it because she was, quote, tired of everybody stepping on her, end quote. Uh, okay, whatever. She tells them that she asked Joe to help her carry out her plan. She tells police that she was mad at her brother for refusing to pay back $40,000 that she claimed he borrowed over the years. And she was even more angry at her parents for not supporting her in her pursuit to get her money back. <laughs> She's angry that her parents are taking her brother Scott's side. Uh, okay. She's also mad that her parents were going to make her and Joe pay rent to live in their trailer on their property. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Okay. I don't think that's a whole lot to ask. Uh, no, especially when you're 29 years old. Yeah, I don't think that's a lot to ask. <laughs> no. They've been living there rent-free. Oh, my gosh. Both Joe and Michelle give very detailed confessions. But after it was all said and done, Michelle knew what she'd done was wrong. I think it was a knee-jerk reaction that she made in haste and anger, and she regretted it as soon as she pulled the trigger. She mm -hmm. called herself a monster. Yeah. I say this because she gives an interview to the press and says she hopes to be executed for the slaughter of her six family members. Wow. She tells them, I want a death sentence. Wow. Quote, I'm a different kind of person. Life in prison is not enough punishment for me. I want the most severe punishment, which would be the death penalty. I want to waive my trial, end quote. Wow. And the King County prosecutor, Dan Satterberg, at first agreed with her. Quote, given the magnitude of these alleged crimes, the slayings of three generations of a family, and particularly the slaying of two children, yeah. I find that there are not sufficient reasons to keep the death penalty from being considered by the juries that will ultimately hear these matters, end quote. Okay. 
Michelle told the Seattle Times and KOMO-TV, quote, I need to be executed for everything that I've done. Deciding that I want to die was the most difficult decision I've ever had to make. Really? (laughs) Uh, Why don't you go back to the day that you actually murdered everybody? Yeah. Yeah. And I was able to make it without a second thought because I know what I've done and I want to take responsibility for it, end quote. So I read that and I was thinking, or do you just not want to spend the rest of your life in prison? Yeah. Is this like suicide by death penalty kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But as soon as she asked for the death penalty, her attorneys say she changed her mind. And after the prosecution decided to seek the death penalty, they would fight to save her life. According to one of Michelle's attorneys, Stefan Illen, quote, the background and mental health history of Michelle make her an inappropriate candidate for a death sentence. I'm confident that a jury will agree, end quote. Hmm. Joe and Michelle are both charged with six counts of aggravated first-degree murder and were held without bail. The town of Carnation at the time, remember? 2,000 people. Yeah, yeah. And everybody who lived there was just in complete and total shock. And horror. Yeah. Yeah. How does this happen in our town? Right. Joe McEnroe confessed to the murders in January of 2014. He's trying to avoid being executed. I'm sure. On December 19th, 2014, a 16-member jury was selected to hear the case against him. And on March 25th, 2015, the jury found Joseph McEnroe guilty of aggravated first-degree murder on all six counts. Good. On May 13th, 2015, Joseph McEnroe was sentenced to life in prison and avoided the death penalty, mainly due to a statewide moratorium on the death penalty by then-Governor Jay Inslee. Okay. So they really didn't go after it because they wanted to keep him in prison or because they didn't want it. It was just they didn't think they would get it. Right. So they just let it go. Okay. Then on March 4th, 2016, after 38 witnesses over five weeks took the stand for the prosecution and the jury heard Michelle's confession tape, Mm -hmm. the defense called zero witnesses. (laughs) Yeah. And in a town of 2000, a close-knit community that probably loved that family, I'm going to guess they couldn't find anybody. Michelle Anderson was found guilty of six counts of aggravated first-degree murder. She was sentenced to life imprisonment in April of 2016. Joe is currently imprisoned in the Washington State Penitentiary, and Michelle is currently imprisoned in the Washington Corrections Center for Women. Hmm. Now, the remaining members of Michelle's family have had a few things to say. Her nephew, Ben Anderson, was reported as saying about Michelle, quote, She felt she wasn't loved enough and everyone didn't appreciate her and she was pushed out of everyone's life, end quote. (laughs) But when it came time for victim impact statements, Michelle's older sister, Mary, who testified that if she had been at her parents' house that night on Christmas Eve as well, she too would have been gunned down. Yeah. She also had this to say, quote, look at what you've done to your life. Look at what you did to your family. Your brother loved you so much. It kills me. I loved you so much. Just know they loved you, end quote. Hmm. Erica Anderson, Scott's wife, her mother also said to Michelle, quote, I don't think you're big and tough, Michelle. I think you're a bully and a coward. (laughs) I am brokenhearted every day. I miss those six people, end quote. Wow. Now, Michelle refused to speak before the judge announced her life sentence without the possibility of parole. 
The senior deputy prosecutor at her trial noted that she arrived at her parents' house armed not only with guns, but also, quote, the trust of the people inside that home and a hatred for the people inside that home. Yeah. Wow. So he's just saying, you know, in business cases, they always say you have a fiduciary duty. Mm -hmm. Well, this is kind of like the same thing. This is your family. They trusted you and you took advantage of that trust. Right. And it's all for $40,000. Yeah. Six lives for forty grand and respect. And how are they supposed to get that 40000 Well, I think she thought that if everybody was gone, she would get life insurance money. That her parents, you know, had yeah. all this money. Remember, she told people in the trailer park that sure. they had money. Right. So maybe she thought that that would get passed down to her. But she does have another sister. So maybe she's thinking she splits that with her. I don't know. Wow. I don't know. Obviously, the plan that she worked on for two weeks wasn't that great. (laughs) Just don't plan a murder about your family on Christmas, right? Just stupid. But that is the story of Michelle Anderson and Joe McEnroe and their violent night in 2007. And that's all I have to say about that. Hey, Hitch to Homicide listeners. The wait is over. If you're a reader or a fan of my Sex and Lies series, Book 10, Sex, Lies, and Rock and Roll is now available on Amazon. With a successful tour and two years of sobriety under his belt, rock star Noah Hart is ready to put his secrets and the past behind him. That is, until his former bandmates and business partners are murdered one by one, and suddenly he becomes the prime suspect. When FBI agent Louisa Hathaway is assigned to the case, No one, including her partner, is aware she carries her own secrets, including an undeniable infatuation with rock and roll's bad boy, Noah Hart. As the body count rises, Agent Hathaway is torn between unraveling the truth and falling for the man who might be the killer. Don't miss this new book, Sex, Lies, and Rock and Roll, by me, Chris Calvert. Only on Amazon. Rock and roll will never die, but it might kill you. You know, it's one thing that, you know, criminals go out and they kill somebody. uh, Randomly that they don't know. Yeah, but to just like annihilate your family. I mean, how do you, it's just incomprehensible. And remember, they're apologizing to them as they shoot them. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Gee whiz. Yeah, you don't have to do this. Yes, I do. What's the thought process there? That's just. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've seen the pictures of Joe on the witness stand. I mean, I don't like giving them too much air because, mm-hmm. you know, they're killers. Sure. But of course, he's just like crying on the witness stand. She's, of course he is. She's crying. Of course she is. In court, you know, she can't look at anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Life in prison's too good. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, if she wanted to die to avoid life in prison, then I'm glad she's sitting there forever. Yeah. Me too. Well, let's move from uh, some cruel people to some stupid people. All right. With a little bless your heart. Well, bless your heart. All right. Number one, this is from one of our in-laws and outlaws members. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Joy Knapp is her name. Thank you, Joy. Yes, Joy. Appreciate appreciate you sending this in. And this one is, I'm going to call it Snorgate. Snorgate. Yes. Okay. A Davis, California woman faces a February 23rd court date for violating the city's noise ordinance 
by allegedly snoring too loudly. <laughs> She's raising the roof, man. Yep. Davis police cited the woman after her next door neighbor complained the snoring was keeping him awake at night. Is this an apartment? Do they have a shared wall or something? Or is this outside? Well, I guess it was like this really thin wall between. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Quote, it's really sad that this is happening, said the 30-year-old woman who asked not to be identified. (laughs) She said, I've been married for nine years and my husband has never complained about my snoring. He's probably snoring too. (laughs) Exactly. Or he's taking a lot of sleeping pills. Maybe. Yeah. The commotion began in the early morning hours of January 31st when Chris Dougherty called police to complain about the snoring (laughs) on the other side of his thin duplex wall. Oh, there it is. There it is. After failing to reach a compromise, Davis police cited the woman under the city's noise ordinance that bars residents from making noise that would annoy any reasonable person. It Reasonable is yep. the operative word. Okay. Yep. This is the first kind of its case, said the lieutenant, and hopefully the last. The woman faces a $50 fine, oh. but city officials have stepped in to try to have the issue resolved out of court. This is not a place where government belongs at all, Mayor Lois Wolk told the Davis Enterprise newspaper. The government (laughs) does not belong in the bedroom listening through walls of other people's houses. (laughs) Oh, the government's listening. Yeah. (laughs) Apple's, everybody's listening. If you're online, if you have a Wi-Fi connection, somebody's watching and listening. Yeah. And to wrap it up, it says, under the ordinance, a person can be cited if they willfully create a nuisance. Since the woman says she does not snore willfully... She hopes the case will be thrown out. Dowdy first approached his neighbors late last year to complain about the snoring, prompting the woman and her husband to place a mattress against the wall. Oh, my gosh. To try to muffle the sound. Unfortunately, the effort failed to appease Dowdy, who finally brought the issue to the police. Okay. Yeah. CPAP machine, honey. Yeah. Get a CPAP machine. Yeah. All that's if your snoring is that loud. Oh my gosh. You need one. Actually, I had a couple buddies, you know, we'd go camping or whatever. They could shake the roof off of a house. It, it was ridiculous. So, I know how annoying it that can be. So, <laughs> uh, my heart goes out to both of them. Anyway. Yes. All right. Number 2. Thanks for the gumball, Mickey. Okay. A criminal stole a mobile phone from his own lawyer who was defending him on a drug and driving offense. (laughs) Just pocket that right here. (laughs) That's it. Bobby Heath, 26, was caught on CCTV taking the cell phone. Okay. The repeat offender was due to appear in court charged with a theft of a smartphone last year. Yeah. It's not his first offense. (laughs) No, he's got a phone fetish. But after a meeting between Heath and his defense lawyer, Charlotte Johnson, she realized that her mobile phone was missing and reported it to the police. Police officer David Pine was at the court, having been involved with Heath's drug and driving case, and reviewed the CCTV footage. Sticky fingers. Yep. He saw the phone had been taken by Heath, who... You know, had already left the building. Of course he had. Yeah, that's it. He's he's scramming. Inquiries to locate Heath eventually traced him to an address in Rochester, Kent. This is over in England. A few days later, and he was arrested by the police. Yeah, find my phone. Yep. (laughs) Yep. So there you go. He's done. All right. And third and finally. Okay. Stop or I'll pop the top. I don't know if I want to know what this is. (laughs) (laughs) No, this is a good one. 
a bungling armed robber tried to hold up a store, but was beaten up by a teenage shop assistant using a can of fizzy drink. (laughs) David Januszewski, 24, tried to hold up a corner shop with an air gun and shot Jordan Athernot, 19, in the face. Yeah. But, oh, wow. But, 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 when he realized it wasn't a real gun, Jordan fought back and picked up a can of the energy drink. It just made him mad. <laughs> and turned it on Janiskowski. Yeah. <laughs> he left the arm raider with cuts and bruises, including two black eyes. Oh, my gosh. That's great. Good yeah. for him. Yeah, prosecutor Kevin Jones said Janiskowski arrived at the... And I'm trying to pronounce this correctly. The Courage Road Store, dressed in dark clothes and wearing gloves and a scarf over his face. Yeah. Quote, he produced a gun at the lone worker shouting, I will shoot you. I will shoot you. Then he shot him. But instead of giving in to the robber, Jordan then picked up the can drink and smacked Janiskowski in the nose. Uh, Why do I have this vision of like a big can of monster energy? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yep, they both wrestled over everything, and then Janiskowski fled the scene. I'm sure. Yep. He was later found hiding in a closet at a home. No, <laughs> Bless his heart. Yeah, yeah. So they uh, they arrested him, and now he's going to be doing a little time. <laughs> See, in my mind, when you're explaining that, they're, like, fighting all over the store. They're, like, knocking over the donut rack and everything. And they find him in the closet eating a donut. He's got exactly. powdered sugar on his face. <laughs> With two black With eyes. With two black eyes, and he's cut up. <laughs> I just love the fact that the guy, he shoots him, and he's like, Okay, now you just pissed me oh, off. Oh, no, you didn't. <laughs> yeah, you did not do that. You did not just do that. <laughs> Picks up a monster drink and smacks yeah, it right in the now nose. Now you're going down. Love it. Now you're going down for sure. <laughs> yep. Well, if you have a bless your heart or you know somebody's heart who needs blessing, or if you're drinking monster energy drinks this week, <laughs> yep. <laughs> and now you know there's another use for them. Yep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> monster, don't call me. You all make great stuff. Yep. Keeps me awake when I need to work. Yep. Go to hitchtohomicide.com where there's a pull-down menu. Mm -hmm. You can also suggest a case while you're there. Yes. That's my amazing husband out there. And that's my beautiful bride in the booth. Join us next time on Hitch to Homicide. (laughs) Bye, y'all.